Well, I'm turning once again back to the text that we just read together. I want to draw your attention to the last two verses of this particular chapter. Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The subject this morning is simply a good report through faith. A good report through faith. One of the things we have to always fight against is the inclination to always deal individually with every character we encounter, with every line that we see. Everyone mentioned in this particular chapter, and we read an extended part of Scripture this morning because each one of these characters was a real, live, living individual. A living individual who now serves as somewhat of a memorial. A memorial to a life that we might say that was well-lived, but more importantly, a life that was lived by faith. Because they lived that life by faith, they are now the recipients and were the recipients and still continue to receive a good report through faith by God himself. All the way back to the first three verses of this chapter and reaching into the, two, the first two verses of chapter 12, act like a sort of bookend. The beginning of Hebrews 11 begins, introduces us to what faith is. It gives us the definition that it is the substance of things not seen, right? It gives us this illustration of what faith is. And then the first two verses of chapter 12 finish it by telling us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is one single theme that is running between chapter 11 and even into the beginning of chapter 12, and that is the single theme of faith. A true definition of faith. Faith being lived out. Faith being demonstrated. Not people talking about faith. Not people saying how faithful they are. It's not the reports of them saying, look how faithful I am. It is God giving them a report saying, here is what faith looks like. When we read those stories and we read those accounts, for those of us that have been in the faith for any amount of time, many of those stories are familiar to you. Many of those stories, those characters, we know who they are. We know a lot about the narrative of what they did. We know the stories. But do we understand that they were all pointing to the reality of what faith really is? Faith is those individuals who are living out what they truly believe. They are living out what Christ has really, truly done for them. Every one of these characters, every one of these individuals, these people lived in hope with an expectation of something better to come. One common theme runs through that none of them were looking at this world saying, this is what I was to wait for, this is what I was to expect. No, the Bible says they were looking for a better country. They were looking for a better builder. They were looking for a better place with a better foundation, that which was, in fact, something much greater than this world could ever offer. The better thing that the writer of Hebrews has been teaching us all since we began even this series all the way back in Hebrews 1, the better thing is Christ. 
The better thing is Christ and His work. And it's held in comparison to all the rites, all the laws, all the ceremonies, which were valuable and important in what they were doing. No doubt about it. But all of these references, all of these things, these reports of faith are used to represent the better thing. The better heaven. The better earth. The estate, the eternity of the believers in glory. Which today, if I could describe to you what glory would be like, I would try, but I would not be able to do it justice for what this better thing, this better heaven is actually going to be. The better thing, the better heaven is not an extension of this earth. Heaven is not just a better version of this world. We are so set on the things of this earth that we are failing to look for the better thing. We're failing to look that Christ has prepared something so much grander, so much greater, something so much more majestic than what this world can offer. And that better thing is Christ. That better thing is what Christ has, been, has taught us, what Christ has showed us, what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. To read the stories of these individuals and to read them without viewing them in the, in the, through the lens of what Christ has done and the redemption that's been accomplished would make these stories just that. Just stories. It would be a narrative. But the narrative that's here is important. But the narrative that's here speaks for itself. The narrative tells us what happened. It tells us how they illustrated their faith. I could go through this verse by verse and I could give you some word meanings. I could expound on individual words. I could pull out expressions or I could approach this text a little bit different today and approach it from a complete narrative. And to see now the better thing, the fulfillment of what they were doing was Christ. Now we begin to understand why they did what they did. Now we begin to understand some of these stories from a completely different perspective. So today, we're going to deal with this text as a narrative. We're going to go through it not so much on a line-by-line basis, but as the story unfolds. We understand all the way back in verse number 8 as we unfold this together, and I'm going to tell you up front, this will be much different than what you're used to me doing. Okay, so this is going to be different. But I want you to listen carefully, and I want you to follow what's happening in the narrative with the better thing in mind, with Christ in mind. And I want you to view it through the lens of the narrative because the writer of Hebrews wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means this, that every single word that you read is God's work. Every single phrase that is used is God's work. It is His word and the Spirit can take every single one of those words and apply it directly to its meaning and you're going to see the beauty of Christ in it all. We see that our examples of faith here begin... And if you want to break these things down, if this helps you to take a passage of Scripture this large and to look at this from this perspective, verses 8 through 16 really teach us about those who were truly persuaded of what faith was, the persuasion of faith. The example begins and it spotlights the faith of a man. This man is known as Abraham. We know the story that God's grace and call came to Abraham Abram in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. This place was a land of idolatry. And we learned that Abraham believed God. He was called to go to a land that he had never seen. Later on, we see that God changes his name to Abraham 15 years after he leaves this place called Ur. 
We often see throughout the life of Abraham that God leads his people in ways that are known to him, but they are not known to the people who are following. Faith always follows the Lord when it knows not where it's going, it doesn't know how it's going to do it, and sometimes it doesn't even know why it's doing what it's doing. So it's by faith that Abraham, as he left Ur and is used by God, lives in a place called Canaan. Canaan, of course, throughout Scripture is the land of promise. And he lives there for a little over 75 years. And in those 75 years, Abraham believes that God would give the land to his seed, though he never had an inheritance in it, which is quite remarkable. Abraham was promised land that he did not have an inheritance or a right to. When Abraham dies, Isaac is 75 years old. Jacob is 15 at this time, and the Bible says they dwelled in tents. Israel later possesses the land, and we see Abraham begin to look for a permanent dwelling in heaven. We actually see Abraham's eyes begin to completely take his eyes off of the things of this world, and he begins to look for a more permanent residence, an eternal residence. Abraham's hopes begin to move away from anything this world offers, and his expectations were now not upon even the land in which he was going to receive, but his eyes are now on the heavenly kingdom and the heavenly dwelling place that's coming. What moved Abraham was his faith. How did Abraham demonstrate faith? He obeyed the word of God. He obeyed the Word of God, and by obeying the Word of God, he suffered everything that came as a result of obedience. Following God and being obedient to God will oftentimes, and more often than not, will lead to times of suffering and times of affliction in this world. So we do know that in Abraham's life, and Hebrews 11.11 makes mention of this, when God announces to Abraham that he's going to have a son, and that son is going to be by Sarah. At that time, Sarah is nearly 90 years old, and we, we know the story, hopefully you know the story, that when Sarah hears about this promise, she laughs. She thinks this is an impossibility. God cannot possibly do this. I'm 90 years old, and you're telling me that God is going to make a barren woman now be able to bring forth a son. We also understand that Abraham begins his own doubts. He begins to question whether or not this can happen. You know Abraham and Sarah have this talk together. They begin to take plans and put things into their own action, and they bring in Hagar into the equation, and a son is born by the name of Ishmael. And of course, we know that even today, Ishmael continues to be a thorn in the side. The, the, the inheritance and the genealogy that follows Ishmael, still the enemies of the things of God today. It's Abraham and Sarah who took matters into their own hands, and for a brief moment, as brief as it was, they questioned and doubted what God was promising, that he would give them a son. So Abraham was guilty of some of those doubts. And it's evident from our text that Sarah, like Abraham, was brought to a full belief in the promised son. And we notice in verse number 12 that through the promise of that son, that the son is actually brought forth. And because of that springs there even of one and him as good as dead as so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore, innumerable. So from one man, Abraham, there have sprung descendant after descendant whose number is as the stars of the heaven and is as countless and as innumerable as the sands on the seashore. That was all promised to Abraham by our Lord in Genesis 15 verses 5 through 6. 
Verse 13 reminds us that these all died in the faith. Now, that doesn't mean that all the seed of Abraham died, but all of the believers and those that were mentioned with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, they died just like other men die this death, but they died being sustained and controlled by a faith, a faith in the promise of a Messiah that was to come. Their faith was not blind. Oftentimes we say faith is just taking a blind leap. Faith is not blind. Faith has an object. And the object of faith in Abraham's life, in Jacob's life, in Isaac's life, in Sarah's life, even though there were times when they doubted and they questioned, faith was in the promised Messiah and faith in an eternal inheritance in heaven. Nowhere was Abraham and Sarah looking for a place to end by saying, this world is our ending home. This is the place we want to remain. This is the place we want to stay. No, they were looking for a heavenly city. Now, those that have died in the faith, it says they were persuaded, they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this earth. And they that say such things, this is interesting, those that say things like that, that we have received the promises, we're persuaded that they're true. They embrace them and they confess that this world is just a place we are passing through. Those that say those things, verse 14 tells us, are plainly declaring they are seeking something else. They're seeking something else. They're not seeking what the world gives. They're not seeking what this place has. They have these promises and they see them by faith in His Word. Faith acts upon what God's Word has declared. Faith declares and does what the Word of God tells us to do. They are looking forward to the very fulfillment of Hebrews 1 and 2, which define faith by telling us faith is the substance of things not seen. Abraham didn't see Christ's day. Abraham didn't see heaven. But yet he believed that those things were going to be so. You and I, in a similar fashion, you have not seen the Christ face to face. You have not seen heaven. You've heard men flail around, try to describe heaven. You've seen people give audience to say, listen, here's what heaven is. I died and went to heaven for 4.5 seconds and here's what I saw. Listen, nobody has seen the true glory of the eternal kingdom. Nobody has seen it and reported on it. Paul said, I went into the third heaven. He wasn't allowed to declare what he saw. That's an important thing to know. Paul was not allowed to say, here's what I saw when I was in the third heaven. So faith doesn't see these things with the human eyes, but yet it embraces them. People that talk this way are not finding their satisfaction or their love in this world. They are strangers. They are pilgrims. They are seeking a heavenly country and they're seeking something of eternal value. They are truly showing what 1 Corinthians 2 verses 8 through 15 tells us that the natural man doesn't see what faith sees. They are sincerely seeking that inheritance even though they haven't seen the inheritance with their eyes. Verse 15 says, Truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came, they might have had opportunity of return. Notice he says if they had been mindful. If that had been the draw, if that had been the thing that they were most after, they would have returned and they would have gone back to what they had and that's where they would have remained. We know that the people of God, the Israelites, when they got across the Red Sea, what happened to them? They crossed over within three days. They're complaining, saying, put us back in Egypt because at least we had good food there. There was always this desire to go back. And yet, people who talk like this don't want to go back. 
We might make an application today by saying people that are the people of God today don't want to go back to the old life of sin. They don't want to go back to that misery. They don't want to go back to that filth. They don't want to go back to what they used to be. No, they are looking for a heavenly city because they see the better thing. They see Christ. Even though they've never seen Him with their physical eyes. They embrace them. They confess them because they're persuaded of them. Abraham was persuaded. Sarah was persuaded. Jacob, Isaac, these men, they were persuaded. God is not ashamed to call those who, are, who serve and follow the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There is this inheritance that's prepared for them and prepared for them all. There is this persuasion of faith. In verses 17 through 22, as the narrative continues, we see the blessing of faith. Of all the trials of Abraham's faith, Verses 17 through 19 really tell us what was probably the most difficult trial that Abraham ever endured. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac that he had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Of all these trials, no doubt this was the most difficult. Here he had left his home in Ur of Chaldees. He had divided the land, remember, when he met with Lot and he divided the land in Lot's favor. He resisted all the riches of the kings. He waited for the birth of Isaac, even though it was covered in doubt and, and covered in, in some of him taking, his own, uh, uh, taking matters into his own hands. Now God commands him to do the unthinkable. He says, I want you to take your only son and I want you to offer him upon an altar. Lest we think that this would have been an easy decision that Abraham just simply got up and said, no problem, God, I got it. He was, still, he was still no doubt troubled by what God was asking him to do. But he believed that God was able to do whatever God was going to do. If God wanted him to slay him, he would have slayed him. He believed that God would raise him up if that be the case. But he also believed that God could also restrain him from carrying out what he was asked to do. Abraham proceeded to do exactly as he was commanded. He offered his only son unto God, the long-promised son, because he believed that God could and would raise Isaac from the dead. How did he know that he would raise Isaac from the dead? If he was allowed to take his life, it's because he knew that God had said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God had promised that through Isaac, your seed would continue. That's faith. That's believing in something you cannot see. He knew Isaac was that promised seed. God had already done what was equivalent to raising Isaac from the dead, if you think about it, because Isaac came from the barren womb of Sarah. We forget that part of the story. Sarah was barren. God changed that. God changed it to where she would now bring forth the son. And notice what it says in verse 17 as we continue. He offered up Isaac. Abraham actually offered Isaac. Genesis 22 gives us the account of what took place there. How that the interaction between Isaac and Abraham was going. And Isaac began to ask the questions. Where is the sacrifice? Where is this? And Isaac Ask the question and Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And he sees the ram caught in the thicket. Ultimately, that's the sacrifice that takes place. And that example that we see, the sacrifice of the ram in Isaac's place, we have a picture of our Lord taking our place and dying for our sins. But you understand something. And in the mind of Abraham, when he was told to sacrifice his only son, I want you to think about this. Isaac was as good as dead. But he believed that God could raise him up. 
Would Abraham have plunged that knife into his son's chest? Yes, he would have. And he would have done it because he believed God. Not knowing the how, not necessarily knowing the why, but he would have done it because that is what God commanded him to do. Verse 19 says, tells us, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. The narrative moves a little bit farther. Now we see Isaac and we see his two sons. And we understand that Genesis 27, verses 26 through 33, Isaac says this, I have blessed him and he shall be blessed. Now think about what happened there. How could Isaac by faith, bless Jacob in the story when he was deceived. If you remember that story, when Isaac was providing the blessing, he truly thought he was blessing Esau, but it was the will of God that he blessed Jacob, even though Jacob was a deceiver. It's pretty amazing. We look at that story and we think, Jacob did something wrong. And yet God's plans and purposes were still being carried out, even when something wrong was being done. You realize that the person, ultimately, that Isaac was blessing, he thought he was blessing Esau, but he was actually blessing Jacob, and that that person he blessed in the name of the Lord would be blessed. It's been said, I don't have any ownership to this. Man supposes, but God disposes. Man supposes what God is doing. Man has an idea of what he's doing. Man has an idea of what he thinks God should do, but it's actually God that's carrying out his plan. You realize God even uses times when we fail in our faith to still carry out his plan. Even when we don't perfectly live faithful lives. And aren't you glad about that? Because we're never always faithful. And because we're not always faithful, we don't have to wonder, is God's plan being carried out? Is that a license to sin? No. We should always want to be obedient to God. We should always want to follow his commands. But understanding something that in our failures and in our doubts, God's plan is not hindered. The man who believes that God is sovereign, he believes in the sovereign purposes of God will be accomplished even in times when we doubt and even in times we don't understand it. There are things we are doing by faith today we don't really understand why we're doing it. Man and the church has tried to categorize everything so we can put some kind of human spin on it but there are things in our life, God's will is being carried out in our acts of faith, and we don't even know what God is doing. You cannot always quantify this, folks. You cannot always put it on a paper and say, here's how you live a faithful life. Here's your checkbox for the day. That's not faith. When you start to read about what these people were doing, you start to realize they had no idea what this checkbox was about, I'm just doing this to get the approval of God. They were actually living their lives by faith. We read about how the patriarchs blessed their sons and grandsons in the name of the Lord. It usually came during their last days. We understand that even Jacob, when he was giving the final blessings to Joseph's sons. You read that story. Jacob actually, instead of putting his hands out like you think he's going to do, he crosses his hands over and he actually gives the blessing to the younger son of Joseph. It's quite a story. He gave glory to God. And he was permitted at that point later to see Joseph again and he also saw those grandsons. 
And that's what we get in verse 21. When he is dying, he blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff. It introduces us to Joseph by faith. Joseph, when he died, seemingly such a small part of the narrative. Yet people often are wondering, why is this so important? By by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Remember, Joseph and the people of Israel were all well situated and had actually gotten a little bit comfortable in Egypt. But Joseph believed that, and he knew someday, I want you to remove my bones from Egypt. Because he knew that one day, the people of God were going to go to the land that God had promised them. People often look at stories like that and they say, what's the big deal? Why do we care about his bones? Why do Joseph's bones matter? Because it was an act of faith. Joseph believed that God's people would not always be there. Yet Joseph, we see, is listed as one of those who received the blessings of faith. The final section, beginning in verse 23, really shows us about the suffering of faith. It begins now to give us the afflictions. Not that Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Joseph did not suffer. But beginning in verse 23, we begin to see the real persecution because of a person's faith. We see the narrative now, beginning in verse 23, it speaks of the faith of the parents of Moses. His parents don't get a lot of the credit for the steps that they took to preserve Moses. We talk about Moses being a man of faith, but do you realize it said he was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. Even Moses' parents were faithful. Remember what the command was. Pharaoh had commanded that all the male Hebrew babies should be killed. This was a decree that went out in all the land. If you were a male baby, you were to be killed. But Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's commands. They believed in the providence and the protection of God. Now, how much did they see? Did they see Moses being a deliverer of God's people out of Egypt? I doubt they saw that far. I doubt they fully understood that this, this time that this child would grow up and maybe they didn't fully understand this, but they by faith delivered Moses out of the hand of those who would want him dead. The narrative moves very quickly here in verse 24. He goes from being a child in verse 23 to by faith Moses, when he's come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect on the recompense of the reward. Moses, about this time, it's estimated, was 40 years old. He'd been educated. He was rich as far as Egyptian standards were. He was set up to be the successor to the Pharaoh. He was second in command. But he said, I refuse this. He knew that he was an Israelite. He knew he was one of God's people. And by faith and choice. Yes, in Reformed Baptist Church, I said the word choice. By choice. Because it is by choice. Don't look at these things as robotic movement that God is pulling strings like a puppeteer. Okay, that is the the foolery of people who look at us and say, you just believe God is yanking all these strings and men are robots. We don't believe any such thing. By choice, look what it says. Choosing rather to suffer affliction. He chose the affliction as one of God's people over all the riches in Egypt and all the prestige, and all the power of being 
the successor to Pharaoh. He refused the honors that came with that. Folks, I don't think we understand Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. He was basically, for lack of a better term, would have been the leader of the free world. Egypt had all the power. Joseph or uh, uh, Moses says, no, I refuse that. He chooses affliction. He would rather be identified with God's people and his oppressed people. He believed the promises of God to be better than having in his possession all of Egypt. And notice what it says. He esteemed. That means to hold in high regard reproaches and afflictions with the people of God than to have every sinful pleasure of Egypt. Do you realize the Pharaoh could have anything he wanted anytime he wanted it? Now, this is not a far stretch. But if you look at our world today, you can have any sinful pleasure you want at any time you want it. All you have to choose is to go after it. You know, it used to be sin was actually kind of difficult to get into your house. It's not so hard anymore. It's coming through some of our most used items, isn't it? It's coming right to us now. I can choose it. I can choose any sinful pleasure I want. I can actually choose sinful pleasures and you may not know about it. Moses said, no, I don't want anything to do with Egypt. I would rather, I would esteem, hold in high regard the suffering with God's people. What did, what did Moses understand? Moses understood that everything, of, everything God promises were eternal promises. Everything here was temporary. And he said, I don't want any of the pleasures of Egypt. I would rather have the pleasures of God forevermore. Christ was made known as the Messiah who would come even to the Old Testament believer. Even though they couldn't see Him, they didn't see the cross because it didn't happen. Don't ever make the mistake of saying Abraham saw the cross. They did not see the cross. They had no idea how all this was going to go down. Even the disciples didn't know until the time came what Jesus was going to do. From the moment He told the disciples, listen, I'm going away from you, they were still confused. But Moses understood. He understood that there was a promise. All of the sacrifices, all the things that had been promised, Moses chose to be identified with God and his people because by faith he looked beyond that day to reward that Christ would one day bring. Listen, you, whether you like it or not, you are identified with something or someone today. You're identified that way. Moses said, I'd rather be identified with the oppressed people of God. At that time, seemingly the lowest people on the earth because they were under Egyptian bondage. He identified, he chose to be identified with the lowliest. Sound familiar? Sound familiar of what Jesus Christ would do when Christ himself would identify himself with the lowest? He didn't come with a scepter in his hand and a crown on his head and say, I'm here to set up my kingdom. No, he came and he bled and he died and he suffered horrific atrocities to secure the redemption and the salvation of his people. When he could have come and he could have just set up that kingdom. But no, Christ, even our perfect example, we know that because of this identification, verses 27 through 29, Moses flees from Egypt. And by the way, he didn't just flee from Egypt simply because he killed an Egyptian and feared Pharaoh. Sadly, that's the Sunday school story. Sunday school story on the old flannel graph is that. 
The reason that Moses left is because he was afraid because he killed an Egyptian. He's afraid of Pharaoh. No, the primary reason that he left is because he believed God. That's a big difference. He believed God. To believe God is faith. He knew the promises of God to Israel. He was willing to endure whatever afflictions and reproaches came because of the faith he saw. It was by faith later he instructs the Israelites to slay the lamb, put the blood on the door, which was typical of the blood of Christ, being sprinkled over the hearts of his people. That death angel, after, Abraham, after Moses had gone in to Pharaoh, oh, time after time after time after time, and said, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. Moses gives him that sobering final warning. And he says, tonight the death angel's coming through and the firstborn in every house is going to be killed. And every house that the blood is not applied of that lamb that was slain, the blood on the doorpost, the, door, the, and the blood across the top, every house that does not have the blood, that death angel is going to enter in and it's going to kill the firstborn. Moses instructed the people, make sure you put the blood on the door. He by faith believed that that, that that death angel was real. He believed by faith that what God said was going to happen was going to happen. And you know the remarkable story. We started off with Moses saying, God, who am I? I cannot speak. I am not able to speak. How can I go into Pharaoh and how can I ask him? And God said, I'll give you a mouthpiece. I'll send you Aaron. Every time Moses said, I can't, I can't, I can't. said, God said, I got an answer for that. I got an answer for that. Every excuse you're going to give as to why you can't be faithful to me, I got an answer for that. So if we sit here today and we say, God, I can't be faithful. I can't, I can't, I can't. Yes, you can be faithful. Faithfulness is based on the promises of God, not your present circumstances. Faith is not about my circumstances dictating to me. Now I can be faithful. It's in the promises of God. That's what every one of these heroes of the faith had. They believed in the promises of God. That's what was motivating them. You and I, and I, I hate to say this, but we have it so easy because we're already seeing the fulfillment. We've already what, witnessed what happened. We're looking back at the cross and we're saying, wow, every one of those Old Testament prophecies is coming true. And not just sort of coming true, actually to the point of everything he said is going to happen. So it's by faith he instructs the people. It was by faith that he believed God would make a way through the Red Sea and deliver them from the Egyptians. You think that wasn't an act of faith? To walk down to the Red Sea and actually believe that God was going to part it when you couldn't go backwards, you couldn't go, you couldn't go sideways, the Egyptian army's right behind you, you can't go anywhere. To take a million people down to the sea and say, now watch what God's going to do. And as they're standing there, the Bible tells us that God says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. I don't know what we would do in our day. I don't know what we do in our generation if we saw a miracle like that today. I've always wondered what would happen if God's people actually saw a Red Sea parting like that. Sadly, there are people that say, "Well, God, if you'll do that, then I'll believe in you." What did God? What did Christ tell Thomas? He told that doubting man. He said, "More it's blessed is the person who believes and doesn't see, more than the person who actually sees it." We don't have to see these things take place because the promises of God are true. He made a way. 
He delivered them from the Egyptians. As you study these examples of faith, we have to continually go back to what verse 1 of this chapter said again, over and over and over again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And look at verse 2, lest we forgot this. For by it the elders obtained a good report. There's that word again, a good report. The people that received a good report were the people who acted on God's promises. Notice, it's not about the people who do the most. It's not about the people who are most active in the church. It's not about the people who are the, the sadly, we've heard this, and, and, and hopefully you've, you've not heard this often, the people who proclaim to be the pillars of any local church. They say, we're the pillars. If you're the pillars of the church, I'm getting out of here. I don't want you to be the pillar. You don't want me to be the pillar. Christ is, Christ is His church. He is the foundation. He is the one. The Word of God is holding up the church. Not people. And yet, we see that true saving faith receives what God's Word says as fact. Even though those facts are not revealed to their human senses. In other words, faith is not revealed in my senses the way many other things are. I'm not comprehending God and the reality of Jesus Christ through my human senses. I'm not comprehending Christ even through my mind. I'm not comprehending Him through my intellectual prowess. I'm not comprehending Him through my education. Education is good. But that's not why you understand the truths. You have discernment, even as Paul wrote, the natural man does not discern these things. You have it because you have the discerning power of the Spirit. That makes the Word of God receive with power. That means that when the Word of God is preached, when it's read, when it's prayed, and you have understanding, that's the Spirit of God applying the Word with power. It has nothing to do with the speaker. It has nothing to do with that man standing up there telling you. It's the Word of God and the Spirit is giving it power. It's not me. Believe it or not, God doesn't need me. He doesn't. We're just mouthpieces. The grace of God, we understand, is the gift of God. It's not the product of what the natural man can think of. True saving faith is that assurance that we hope for in Christ, and it's the reality of things we do not yet see. Faith believes that God is and will do everything He said He will do, regardless of the circumstances. And I am not trying to be a downer today, but if you think the world is dark now, pardon the grammar, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, I know there's a whole group of people out there that say that means we're the pessimist of the group. Don't you want to see a great awakening? Don't you want to see a revival? Of course I do. But I also know the Bible does make it very clear that the days will grow darker People will have itching ears. We read that in 2 Timothy 4. There will come a day when everybody will want nothing but tickle me theology. And folks, unless you're not paying attention, the church has been on that road for a long, long time. Just tickle the ears. When you read and you want tickle my ears theology, how do you deal with the last 10 verses of this chapter when it starts talking about what these people did? Do you know what it is to be sown asunder? Do you know what it is that some of the Mars of the faith have their limbs tied to horses standing on either side of them and then 
they giddy up the horses in the opposite direction? Do you know why those people died? They died for this faith. Folks, these aren't people that were sitting around saying, you know, give us good, make me, good, make me feel good theology. And by the way, there's some characters mentioned in verses 30 through 40. You actually start asking yourself, wait a minute. They had some blemishes on their record. I can actually think of some stories, and one of them is mentioned here in a moment. That's like, if I remember the story right, he actually did some pretty bad things. But yet he's mentioned in the generation who received a good report. So the grace of God, faith, the gift of God, it's not the product of the natural heart. But look what it says when we begin there in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. The narrative continues. We know the trumpets and we think about Joshua was told to have the people blow the trumpets and to march around the walls of Jericho seven times, shouting something that seemed to be a useless phrase but they believed God and they did it anyway. And what happened to the walls? Joshua 6 verses 1 through 25 tells us that the walls came tumbling down. Blowing trumpets. The world must have looked at that and said, could you imagine if that was on the news today? There's Christians marching around a city and they're blowing on trumpets. You think this wouldn't be on all the major news sites? And people would be looking at that and saying, I knew Christianity was a really messed up thing. But there are a bunch of people who are blowing trumpets and they're yelling gibberish. Nobody understands what they're saying. And they're marching around a city. Now, hopefully, the camera's still rolling as they're walking around the city and the walls suddenly come tumbling down. What are those people doing? They don't exactly understand why they're marching around the walls, why they're marching around Jericho, but the walls fall. Why did they do it? Because God told them to. Faith doesn't always understand the why or even the end result in some of these things. Then it introduces us to, and I love the fact, and again, hear me when I say this, by faith the harlot. Now, if you don't stand up and take notice of this, you're not paying attention to Scripture. How would you like it in the hall of heroes to be reminded of what you were? Rahab the harlot. Harlot's not a good thing, folks. Why is she mentioned that way? Well, we know the story, hopefully. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. What had happened in that story, the, story, the harlot Rahab in Joshua 2 hides the spies of Israel, drops a, by coincidence, scarlet line from the window. She believed God. That scarlet line's a picture of redemption. That scarlet line's a picture, and isn't it interesting that God chose a harlot to throw that scarlet line out? Then the theological debates come up. But what about the fact that she lied? Folks, remember, I'm, I'm telling you, God's providences and God's purposes are being carried out. He goes on by faith. Gideon marched against a huge army with only 300 men. And you remember the story how he chose the men? He did it by how people lapped up water. He chose them by those that pick up the water with their hands in a cup and those that get down like dogs. At the end of all of that, there's 300 of them. Going against an army of people, 300 of them is the ones that were chosen to do that. 
By faith, Gideon marches this huge army with only 300 men. By faith, we know of a man named Barak engages in a battle under the sole direction of a woman named Deborah. Giving God all the glory. You can read about that in Judges 4 and Judges 5. And then by faith, Samson. Oh, Samson has quite the history, doesn't he? Samson has the history of being persuaded by Delilah. Finds himself with his eyes put out. But in the very last act of his life, he destroys the Philistines by pushing down these mighty pillars. We're reading about Samson today, even though Samson had some faults. He's one receiving a good report. By faith, Jephthah, in Judges 11, returns to Israel, a place where he had been cast out of because he was the son of a harlot. He's used by God to deliver Israel from our enemies. By faith, David, we know the story about him slaying Goliath, but we also know about Samuel. Samuel was always ready to hearken and proclaim the voice of God. By faith, verse 33, they subdued kingdoms. By faith, they wrought righteousness, or we might say administered justice. Our faith is not our righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness. Faith is what brings us into this very real union with Christ, but it's true faith that produces righteous acts. When I'm doing things in obedience to God, that's being produced by true faith. And then notice these last people, and it's interesting to me, and I hope you'll sit up and take notice of this. Between verses 33 and verse 40, there's not a single name mentioned. And yet, look again at what they endured. Do you think that these people wanted to be in the hero books? Do you think the people that died for this faith are concerned right now that, why aren't they talking about me? Why aren't they talking about how I was torn asunder? Why aren't they talking about my sufferings? Why aren't they talking about my afflictions? But yet we're reading about them. There's been a debate for years why all of them, some of these individuals are not mentioned. But it was by faith they did these things. All of these are examples without reference to an individual person. They're told to have done great things. They suffered great things. They endured great things. Why? Because they believed in a better thing. They believed in God. They endured unthinkable things. I love what it says in verse 34 of one of the many things. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight. Think about that for a moment. It was out of weakness they were made strong. Folks, it is only when we come to the end of ourselves and realize it is not in our strength, it is not in our power to live out faith. It's only in weakness. It's weakness because God has to do the work through us. God is the one who is doing these workings through us. Faith is obeying what God tells us to do even when we don't fully understand why. Stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword. 
wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. The, the amount of horrific things that these people endured, and by the way, are still enduring today. There's been a movement not too many months ago and years ago, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I think it is something to consider. There's been an intentional actions on the part of the enemies of the cross to actually replicate some of the afflictions and the sufferings that people endured in the Bible to bring them back and make them suffer like that again. Folks, I hope, I hope to God we don't take for granted what we're not experiencing right now. I hope to God it doesn't take us by surprise when the persecution comes. It may not be in our lifetimes for many of us. It may not be to our children. I don't know. But if you think there's going to be a day when the world is going to wake up and love Christianity and love the things of Christ and love the things that God offers, I'm sorry to say you've probably got your head buried in the sand. When the persecution comes, there will be those that will flee. Fleeing doesn't always mean that you're not in the faith because I don't think we understand this. I don't think we have a clue what it was like to actually live under this type of persecution. So for us to sit and throw stones and say, look, let them come to the front door, watch me stand. Just big talk. But when the persecution comes, prayerfully we do stand, prayerfully we stand, and we, out of our weakness, wax valiant in the fight. But understanding that the reason all these people did that was because they knew that there was a promise of a better thing. Everything was being accomplished according to God's purposes and plans. The Old Testament believers rested in the promises of Christ and life in Him even though He came to earth after they had died themselves. They had Christ only in promise. We actually have Christ Himself. The presence of the Spirit is to have the presence of Christ. Not the same. But if you have the presence of the Spirit, then you actually know Christ. Because Christ, the Spirit, only dwells in those that know Christ. If you're here today and you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you don't have Christ. The Spirit of God is the evidence that I am in Christ. The Spirit of God is not taking up residence in the unregenerate. The, the Spirit of God is not in every unbeliever waiting for them to activate Him. No, He's not there until a person repents of their sins, believes in Christ alone. What they had to Christ in type, we have Him in reality. They had Him in shadows and pictures and illustrations. We have Him in reality. They, were believe, they believed and were saved by looking unto Jesus who was to come. We believe and are saved by Him who has already come. They were justified not because they kept the law perfectly. They were justified because of Christ. But it's interesting that the very last phrase, it says that God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They were not made perfect without us, nor are we made perfect without them. All believers in every age, in the past and the generations to come, are all in Christ Jesus. 
It's not a doctrine you hear everywhere. But that's what the Bible teaches. By faith, we could make a lot of conclusions from Abraham. We could see Abraham producing this entire nation according to God's promises. We can see a people that are innumerable. There's too many to measure them. There's too many to count them. Believers embrace the promises of God by faith and they don't look any further. Faith looks one direction. It looks to Christ. It looks to the promises. It says that is the fulfillment. That is the promises of God. People often say, I hate the doctrine of election because it means so few people are going to be in glory. I don't take that position. Here's what you don't know. Here's what we're not told. We're not told how many elect there are. Somehow it's got equated that if you believe in election, that you must believe in a very small amount. Says who? Now we do know that Jesus himself said very few will find the right way. We do know these things are true. But do you think about the, the promises that were given to Abraham that there would be innumerable people that would come from my seed, not just people in general, but people of God. You begin to look at this and you begin to understand that this innumerable company of elect, you and I, humanly speaking, cannot prove any of this. You understand, you can't prove the existence of God humanly. You say, wait a minute, I can get a lot of evidence, I can put it together. You're not going to prove the existence of God to an unbeliever unless the power of God opens their eyes to the truth. There's a lot of smart people in this room. There's a lot of people who could say, look, I, I, I can convince you there's a God. Not unless the power of God goes forth in the Spirit giving the power for them to understand. You're not going to get someone to intellectually arrive at faith. It's not going to happen. But it's only faith that pleases God. And if faith is God-given, then the only way I can please God is through this faith. The only way I can have a good report is through faith that's God-given. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There's no two ways about this. Without faith, you are not pleasing God. And yet therein lies the mystery. How do I get faith? Faith comes from that choice of God when God chooses those and He saves them. Saving grace is imparted into them. Faith is lived. The actions are lived because they believe. Faith isn't saving you. Faith is a response to what's taken place. Folks, even though I'll never be able to prove, humanly speaking, that any of this ever happened or this exists, God's Word said He is faithful. He's faithful to do all He has promised. These heroes of faith received a good report through faith. The report was given by God Himself. And today, these individuals stand as an eternal testimony to us. They're in glory today. And how it's going to work, I don't know, but we're going to see them. We're going to see them. Let's conclude our time this morning by singing the hymn on 442.